Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 22, Working with Couples in Solution-Focused Practice. Well, thank you for joining me here again on Leading from Behind. And as you might be aware, we've been on a rather lengthy and unanticipated break from the podcast. So I'd like to start by apologizing to any regular listeners who've been looking for us since our last episode in November. Now, at this time, we'll be resuming the podcast on a monthly basis, so you can expect to find new episodes of Leading from Behind on or about the first of each month. Now, in this particular episode, we'll be taking a very general look at how, in solution-focused practice, we engage couples in conversations that are helpful in strengthening their relationships. In the closing resource segment of the podcast, I'll mention several links and books relating to solution-focused practice in this area of working with couples. So, once again, thank you for joining me here on Leading from Behind. I hope you'll find this episode useful in your understanding and practice of solution-focused therapy. Working with couples can be one of the most rewarding experiences you can have as a therapist or counselor. You can be a witness at times to the joy that couples experience when their relationships have been reconnected, revitalized, or strengthened. It's also a privilege to facilitate these conversations, often about very personal and intimate aspects of people's lives together. At the same time, though, working with couples also presents some additional challenges for therapists in comparison to having a conversation with just one person in the counseling room. We have to make sure, for example, that we can make space for what's important to both clients and ensure that equal time is given to each. And, of course, it can be very challenging at times to engage in useful conversations when couples have significant differences or present with considerable anger, hurt, and resentment towards each other. And finally, you have the additional demand of maintaining a facilitation role of sorts during the conversation so that you're not perceived as aligning yourself with one partner over the other. It's important then for helping professionals to have a clear sense of their role when working with couples and, at the same time, have knowledge of a bona fide therapeutic approach, like solution-focused therapy, that gives couples the best possibility for a positive outcome. Now, in this particular episode, we'll begin by looking at a few preliminary considerations to keep in mind as you prepare to meet with a couple for the first time. Then we'll take a look at the general framework used by the solution-focused practitioner in creating conversations that focus on what couples want in rebuilding or strengthening their relationships. Now again, keep in mind that our discussion here will be fairly general in nature. In the future, we'll certainly devote additional episodes to some of the finer points in working with couples in a solution-focused manner. I should also note here that our discussion about couples should be considered applicable to all intimate relationships, regardless of sexuality or gender identity. So let's begin then by looking at a few things to consider that can be useful as you prepare to meet with a couple for the first time. First and foremost, we want to pay very close attention, as early as possible in the session, to whether or not both persons want the same thing from the conversation together. 
So, for example, are both committed, in some way, to the idea of improving or strengthening their relationship. There are times when, despite attending the session together, that one party is interested in strengthening the relationship, while the other might be more focused on ending it. Sadly, I've had experience in the past where one person, unbeknownst to the other, has actually attended the relationship with the express purpose of ending the relationship. So it's important then to know fairly early in the session whether there's some level of shared desire for a particular outcome from the work together. If the two parties have opposite intentions, it's very difficult, if not unhelpful, to proceed with a couple session. In those situations, you would certainly want to address how you could be helpful to both persons, given the difference in what they want as a desired outcome. More often than not, the result is that couple therapy is likely not indicated, and, depending on your work environment, it might be more useful to invite each person to consider individual sessions instead. Now, a further consideration in meeting with a couple for the first time is the following. Whose idea was it for the couple to attend? It's not unusual, for example, for one person to be very interested in having a conversation about the relationship with a counsellor, while the other isn't particularly enthusiastic about the idea. In other words, it's possible that one part of the couple has reluctantly agreed to attend the session. This doesn't mean, of course, that the mandated person doesn't share the desire to strengthen the relationship. Instead, it just might mean that they're not committed to the idea of therapy or counselling as the vehicle for doing that. It can be important then to consider some of our discussion in episode 21 about engaging with mandated clients. In the course of the conversation with a couple, the solution-focused therapist would want to be very conscious about what's important to that person, his or her good reasons for adopting their position, as well as their ideas about how the conversation might be helpful despite their stated position. Now, a final consideration to mention is to understand why the couple has chosen this particular time to engage in couple therapy. While in many cases there might not be anything notable about the timing, there may be times when a significant event has recently occurred, such as, for example, the discovery of infidelity or an incident of family violence. While this wouldn't necessarily change anything about the solution-focused therapist's approach to the session, this information can still be useful in appreciating or understanding the couple's temperament as they come through the door for the first time. Or, in the case of family violence, there's an opportunity to determine whether there are any risks associated with seeing the couple together. And finally, depending on the precipitating event, there may be some rich opportunities for exploring the presence of pre-session change. So, let's shift now into our discussion of the general structure or process of a solution-focused conversation with a couple in a first session. Not surprisingly, this process is similar, if, if not identical in many ways, to what we would do in a first session with an individual client. However, we do want to zero in on some of the unique elements of this structure when working with a couple. Now, in beginning the session, it's often helpful to engage in some problem-free conversation with the couple. This can help to put both parties at ease and, at the same time, identify something useful about the couple's existing strengths and skills. So the problem-free conversation might be as simple as asking each person about what they like to do with their time, uh, to asking some questions about how long they've been together, or even how they met each other. 
Elliot Connie, a solution-focused therapist, trainer, and author who we've mentioned here before and we'll mention again in the resource segment of this episode, talks about how this problem-free talk can focus on asking couples about what attracted them to each other. Before the session has really got started, this can sometimes allow the couple to connect with something positive or allow them to recall a time in the relationship that they want to reclaim or rediscover. Either way, the point of this preliminary conversation is to perhaps build a sense of positivity or energy in the room that can create some momentum for the solution-building conversation that will follow. Now, the next part of the conversation may vary according to your style and preference, but typically we would ask couples some variation of one of the following questions. So the first might be, what are your best hopes from our conversation? Or perhaps... Supposing our conversation today was helpful to both of you, how is it that you might discover this in the days ahead? The intent with either of these questions is twofold. First, as we would in any solution-focused session, we want to obtain some kind of general expression of what the clients want from the work together. Secondly, and as I mentioned in our discussion of some of the general considerations in working with couples, these questions also allow for an initial understanding of whether both parties have a shared desire toward a better relationship. Now, in practice, the answers we receive from couples here typically require some deconstruction. For example, it's very common for partners to say that they want to communicate better. As we've discussed in previous episodes, we want to get some kind of behavioral picture of what's wanted. So the solution-focused practitioner will often ask some follow-up questions to get a clear sense of what this means. Often, we might do this by asking questions like, So in the days ahead, how would you begin to notice that you were communicating better? Quite often, in deconstructing words like communication, we find that what's really wanted doesn't have all that much to do with the conventional definition of that word. Instead, what we hear is how partners want to spend more time together, show and receive more physical affection, or receive more help and support with the tasks of daily living, or perhaps managing parenting responsibilities. But again, our intent here is to clarify in a general way what's wanted from the work together. And when this becomes clear, it can be useful to summarize what you've heard from each partner. It's a way of letting clients know that you've been listening carefully, and it allows for the clients to show agreement that we're on the same page together. Now, it's quite common that when asking about the couple's best hopes from the session, one or both partners will already begin to identify some of the problems that have brought them through the door. And most certainly, we do want to leave sufficient room for this. In fact, after clarifying what the couple wants from attending, it's perfectly acceptable then to ask the couple to tell you more about the problems that have brought them into your office. It's important to keep in mind that even though we are solution-focused, it doesn't mean that we're problem-phobic. It can be very important for one or both parts of a couple to want room to describe these problems. And, as practitioners, we want to be sensitive to the fact that clients want to be heard and understood. The challenge, of course, is to make room for and be respectful of the problem descriptions and dialogue, yet at the same time be aware of the time needed to spend on the solution-building conversations that connect to the couple's best hopes. Now, there's no hard and fast rule about how much time to spend in conversation about the problems. Obviously, this can vary according to each unique couple. But it's useful to remember that couples often already have many conversations together about the problems before walking through your door. 
In some instances, partners want to tell their side of the story as if the therapist was going to be the judge of who's right and who's wrong. And of course, this isn't our role as the therapist. Our role is to facilitate a useful conversation that will enable clients to move toward their best hopes. So our point here is simply that we want to leave room for problem descriptions, yet stay focused on moving more rapidly toward what couples want instead. Now, in this first part of a couple session, we also want to look for opportunities to inquire about how couples have coped and managed in the face of the problems. Again, this can be a useful way of implicitly underlining individual and conjoint strengths, skills, and resilience. It can also be a useful way of shifting away from the problem descriptions. So, for example, as one or both parties describe some of the problems, we can ask questions like, so what's helped even just a little bit in keeping things together so that both of you are sitting here today? Client responses here are sometimes useful in shifting the momentum away from the burden of problems into something more helpful. Now, a further question, and certainly a staple of a first session in solution-focused therapy, relates to the existence of pre-session change. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the solution-focused practitioner holds the assumption that change is constant and inevitable. Now, based on our experience, the incidence of pre-session change seems to be more frequent with couples than with individual clients. More often, it seems that the mutual decision to attend counseling becomes a starting point for improvements in the relationship. So it can be useful then to ask couples something like the following. Often, couples tell me that they start to notice some improvements in their relationships between the time they make the decision to come here and the actual first appointment. So I'm curious what each of you have noticed between the time you made this appointment and today. It's common in our experience that couples will say things like, well, we haven't been fighting as much, or we've been spending a bit more time together. With these types of responses, the therapist then has a rich opportunity to engage in a solution-building conversation. For example, when couples say they've been fighting less, we want to be curious about this and ask questions like, how come? Or, so if you've been fighting less, what have you been doing instead? Or quite simply, how have you managed to do that? And of course, as we hear some of the details of what couples have been doing differently or doing instead, we can ask further questions to build or amplify this progress. Now, I don't want to overstate the prevalence of pre-session change with couples, but there are certainly times when the exploration of pre-session change can actually be the sole focus of a couple session. For example, I've met with some couples in the past who've made such significant progress in their relationship prior to the session that my role was simply to elicit, amplify, and reinforce what was working, similar to what we might do in a follow-up session in solution-focused therapy. But of course, these kinds of sessions are certainly exceptional in nature, but it's still worth keeping in mind that such possibilities do exist when you meet with a couple for the first time. So at this point, let's recap some of the processes that might occur during the first part of an initial session with couples in solution-focused therapy before we make a shift into a discussion of the couple's preferred future. First, we've engaged the couple in some problem-free talk at the very beginning of the session. We've also explored the couple's best hopes from the conversation and have some general ideas about how they'll know that the work together has been helpful. We also have some agreement that both parties have a shared or similar desire to strengthen their relationship. 
Next, both parts of the couple have had an opportunity to describe their perception of the problems in the relationship and how these show up in their lives together. We also have some understanding of how each has coped or managed in the face of these difficulties. And finally, we've explored for the presence of pre-session change and amplified and reinforced the difference this has made. So this brings us then to a significant shift in the conversation as we begin to explore the couple's preferred future. Now, in asking the miracle question or any other question about preferred future with couples, there are a few things worth paying attention to. First, it can be very useful to facilitate as much as possible a turn-taking process with the couple as they talk about their preferred future together. So, for example, if one partner responds first with something he or she might notice that would be a sign of the miracle or that a best hope had been realized, it can be useful, after deconstructing and amplifying the response, to invite the other partner to speak next on what he or she would notice. Going back and forth in this way, throughout the exploration of preferred future, is typically a good way of keeping both parties involved and ensuring some degree of equality in the voices being heard. Of course, there are times when this isn't easy, especially when one partner is less talkative or has more difficulty in identifying what they want. Now, the second consideration when exploring the couple's preferred future relates to the therapist's role in inviting each to provide behavioral descriptions of what's wanted, how each would respond to such behavior, and ultimately the difference this would make to each. In our experience, it's very common for each partner to describe what the other person will be doing or stop doing rather than a description of their own behavior. So, for example, one partner might say something like, he'll stop spending so much time on his computer. As the solution-focused practitioner, it's our role then to engage in the following. First, invite a description of what the partner will be doing instead and the difference this would make to the speaker. And second, inquire about how the speaker might react or respond when the more desired behavior occurs. So with this same example, we might say something like, So, what would your partner be doing instead when he's no longer on the computer so much? Once the presence of something else is identified, we would want to ask questions like, what difference would this make, or how would this help? And finally, we would then invite the speaker to describe, in some way, what he or she might do in response. So again, with the same example, we might ask, so how would you react when you saw him spending more time with the children in the evening? Or, how would he know that this was making a difference to you? Now, while it's common for people to describe what their partners will be doing or stop doing during the description of a preferred future, it's also common for some people to simply use the word we. So, for example, a partner might say something like, we would spend more time together, or we would be getting along better, or perhaps even we would have sex more often. The challenge in responding to these statements is to invite couples to say more about what each might do or do differently that might result in such behavior. So, if we choose the statement, we would spend more time together, the solution-focused therapist would want to be curious about how this might happen, and of course, what's meant by spending more time together. Now, we might be curious about this by asking questions like, so what would you notice that you were doing that was helping this to happen? 
or perhaps, so how would you begin to notice that spending more time together was important to your partner? What might he or she do that would tell you this? And of course, as more detail is obtained here about who is doing what that would lead to such a change, we can learn more about what spending more time together means to this unique couple. So this might lead to examples like, he'd accept my invitation to go for a walk after supper, or I would ask her to go out to a movie. Again, as the we is being separated into who, and more detail is provided about what more time together means, the solution-focused therapist would then look for opportunities to amplify the difference these actions or behaviors would make for each partner. Now, a final point to make about exploring the couple's preferred future relates to our role in facilitating the conversation between the two parties. There are times, of course, when one or both parts of a couple can bring considerable anger, frustration, or resentment into a couple session. As a consequence, one or both might react negatively or defensively to the other's responses. So, for example, in responding to the miracle question, if one partner says he wouldn't spend so much time on the computer, the other partner might be quick to jump in with comments like, you spend just as much time on your computer, or I don't spend half the time on my computer as I used to. Obviously, the challenge for the therapist in these situations is to carefully and respectfully invite the conversation back into a more constructive direction. Now, I won't say that this is always easy, but it's important to maintain your role as the moderator or facilitator of the conversation. What we find to be most useful is to interrupt and acknowledge the second partner's comment, but then quickly get back to asking for a description of what's wanted instead. In some instances, it can also be useful to ask the defensive partner to hold on to their concern, even though we have no intent of getting back to it. Insu Kimberg, for example, was extremely skilled when faced with clients who lapsed into problem talk or complaints while engaged in a solution-building conversation, sometimes by saying, we'll get back to that. Once the conversation moved back into solution-building, the getting back to that was quickly forgotten by the client. Now, to close this discussion about the conversation about the couple's preferred future, it's also useful to highlight the use of relationship questions. Now, in this context, relationship questions refer to what others outside of the couple might notice that gave further evidence that something better was happening. With couples, others might include their children, extended family, and even friends. So, for example, when couples have children, regardless of their age, you might ask, So, what would your kids notice about the two of you that might give them the idea that something different was happening? Often, couples with children respond with some very poignant observations that children might make. In some cases, they say things like, they'd see us kissing more often or holding hands, or they'd see us together more often, or even there would be more laughter in the house. In some instances, we can even ask what others might notice that's different about the individual partners, even though the others might not be aware that the relationship has strengthened. Again, clients often respond by noting how others would notice a positive change in their mood or demeanor, or that they're talking about something other than their struggles in their relationship. So as mentioned in previous episodes, a good portion of a first session can be spent eliciting and amplifying the client's ideas about their preferred futures. And this certainly holds true with couples as well. 
Now, when this portion of the conversation is concluded, we would typically move towards some additional questions that are part of the solution-focused approach. Now, I say typical because there are certainly times when these questions might arise at other times rather than following the exploration of the couple's preferred future. But in general, our remaining areas of inquiry are questions about exceptions, in other words, times when aspects of the preferred future already occur, scaling questions, which I'll speak to in a moment, and finally, asking about the couple's ideas about next small signs of change. Now, when working with couples, there are no specific requirements about the kinds of scaling questions we might ask. But generally, in our experience, we would likely ask at least two different scaling questions. First, we'd ask each party to indicate where they see the relationship today in relation to the preferred future. So this question might sound like this. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is the day after the miracle, not perfect, of course, but where you'd like things to be, and 1 is the opposite, where would you put things today? With two clients in the room, it's often interesting to observe how they react to each other's answers. On a good note, there's sometimes a positive surprise when one partner sees the relationship at a better point than what was anticipated by the other. In fewer instances, it can be difficult for one of the partners to hear that the other has rated the relationship lower than expected. By and large, however, each partner's response tends not to be wholly surprising to the other. In some cases, couples will actually say that their ratings are actually higher than what they would have said at the beginning of the session. This can be a great opportunity then for the solution-focused therapist to ask about what's happened during the session that's resulted in this higher rating. In our experience, clients often say that hearing some of the details of what the other wants and how it will make a difference tends to build more optimism. Secondly, we would say that the content of solution-building conversations, where there's a focus on what works and what's wanted, rather than a focus on the problems and what's not wanted, often plays a strong role in developing more optimism about relationships. Now, the second scaling question that we tend to ask couples is about their energy for doing things that will continue to strengthen the relationship. In practice, we prefer the use of the word energy rather than motivation. Motivation, from our perspective, tends to be more associated with the language of psychology and, in some instances, can be interpreted as denoting whether someone cares about doing something helpful. Energy, on the other hand, whether it's high or low, doesn't necessarily reflect whether someone cares to do something or not. So, in practice, the scaling question about energy might sound like this. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, where you have lots of energy to do things that might be helpful right now, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be today? Again, there can be some follow-up questions that arise from the couple's responses here. When energy is rated low, for example, we might ask, how come it's a 2 rather than a 1? We would do this as a means of inviting something useful for the other partner to hear. And secondly, we might even ask, and how will you recognize that your energy has grown to a three? Again, the purpose is to invite a response that provides some hope for the other partner. Finally, if the responses indicate a high level of energy, we will react enthusiastically and perhaps ask, how come? Often, this allows clients to say something about how important the relationship is to them and their desire to strengthen it. Now, another potential scaling question, especially when both parties rate their relationship higher on the scale, is about confidence. In this instance, we might ask, 
On a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is you're very confident that you can maintain this 8, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be today? Again, we might further inquire about how come, inviting the clients to say something about how they've come to this level of confidence. And so, as noted a moment ago, a final area of inquiry in the session is to ask the couple about next small signs of change. As we talked about in previous episodes, we're interested here in behavioral detail. And, of course, a sign of change rather than what must be done. So if one partner says the sign will be something that the other has done, then we'll ask how the speaker would react or respond. And again, if either says we will be doing something, you might ask for more detail about who might be noticed doing something that might allow this to occur. Now, the final piece of the first session with a couple involves a break, so that you, as a solution-focused therapist, can develop some feedback for the couple. As we've noted in previous episodes, our end-of-session message typically includes some direct compliments, validation or normalizing of the concerns, a summary of what stood out as important, and, quite often, a between-session task. Each couple, of course, is unique, so it's impossible to say something definitive about the actual content of a message. But there are some themes that we've observed in practice. First, as far as direct compliments are concerned, it's common to offer compliments about each party's decision to attend, or, in some cases, their willingness to attend. As well, we might note something about their desire to do something different. When couples have identified a very rich and clear picture of their preferred future, we would often highlight how impressive it is that they really know what they want, given that lots of people tend to get stuck on what they don't want. And of course, it's also possible to give separate compliments to each part of the couple, depending on the content of the session. And finally, sometimes a compliment can be found in how one or both parts of the couple have coped or managed in the face of the problems that have been knocking their relationship around. Now, as far as validation is concerned, many of the couples we've seen have experienced significant transitions in the course of their relationships. So, for example, it's common for couples to have gone through transitions like having children, buying homes, changing jobs, as well as experiencing many of the financial and social stresses that can occur in modern life. As a result, it can sometimes be useful to validate or normalize how transitions, even the good ones, often pose challenges to relationships. And finally, it's also useful to validate some of the strong feelings, like anger, frustration, resentment, and sadness, that individual partners might have, even when they're not acknowledged or agreed upon by the other partner. So after recapping what stands out as important to the couple, there remains an opportunity to invite the couple to return for a follow-up session and a potential between-session task or suggestion. Now, since we've discussed this subject in a previous episode, I won't go into any further detail about between-session tasks. However, I will note that a common suggestion to couples following a first session is to encourage them to pay close attention to the times when some of the actions or behaviors they've described in their preferred future occur. In practice, we sometimes characterize this as catching each other doing something right. This suggestion can be particularly useful because many couples already have lots of expertise about what they don't want, and, as a result, they tend to be very proficient at noticing when this happens. So instead, we like to encourage them to take a new lens to their relationship by watching for the behavior that they'd like to see happen more often. 
Now, since we'll be coming back to the subject of working with couples in a future episode, I won't say much about follow-up sessions here. However, I will say that in solution-focused practice with couples, we use the same process or structure we've previously described in follow-up sessions with individuals. Our focus is on eliciting descriptions of what's better and then amplifying and reinforcing those improvements. So in closing our discussion about working with couples, I'd certainly like to say that a solution-focused approach can be a very helpful way for couples to move away from what they don't want and move more rapidly toward what they want instead. As well, given this way of working together, it's our experience that couples often find such improvements with only a small number of sessions, and sometimes after only a single one. And, as mentioned in the beginning of this episode, it can be an extremely rewarding experience for the solution-focused therapist to be a witness to the renewal and strengthening of loving relationships. In keeping with the subject of this episode, I'd like to highlight a website and a few books that might be useful in learning more about the solution-focused approach to working with couples. As always, you can find links to the books on the podcast page of our website at www.hbtc.ca. Now, we've mentioned the work of Elliot Connie here in the past. At the moment, he's certainly one of the more prolific practitioners of solution-focused work with couples. So it would be well worth your time to learn more about some of his work. He's written several books relating to working with couples and frequently offers training workshops on this subject. So to find out more about Elliot Connie's work, you can go to elliotconnie.com. Now, another very useful book on this subject is called Recreating Partnership, a Solution-Oriented Collaborative Approach to Couples Therapy. Written by Toby Hiller and Philip Ziegler, it was published in 2001. Now, while it's not a solely solution-focused book, this work still offers a clear description of working on what couples want in moving toward a better relationship. A chapter devoted to scaling questions is particularly notable in this book as well. Now, a third work that might be of interest was written by Bill O'Hanlon and Patricia Hudson O'Hanlon and published in 1994. Entitled Rewriting Love Stories, Brief Marital Therapy, this book still stands the test of time when it comes to working with couples in a strength-based, solution-oriented fashion. And finally, it's worth mentioning another book that was published over 20 years ago. Divorce Busting was published in 1993, and it was written by Michelle Wiener Davis. She spent time working with Steve DeShazer and Insu Kimberg at the Brief Family Therapy Center in Milwaukee during the initial development years of solution-focused therapy. Now, this book is actually written for people in general rather than just therapists and counselors. Nevertheless, it's still a good book for getting an understanding of how solution-focused ideas are applied to relationships. As well, it can be a good book to suggest to individuals or couples if they seek recommendations about reading material about ways to strengthen their relationships. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me here on Leading From Behind. If you have questions or comments arising from this episode or the podcast in general, please feel free to leave a comment on the podcast page of our website at www.hbtc.ca or by sending an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. 
We also encourage suggestions or ideas for future episodes. Now, our next episode, number 23, will be available on or about the 1st of March in 2014. In that episode, we'll take a general look at working with children and adolescents when using the solution-focused approach. In the April episode, we'll be taking a step outside the helping professions by looking at how solution-focused practice can be used in coaching in the workplace. In closing, our thanks to Dano of danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under a Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, the podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy. I certainly hope you'll join us again.